You guys aren't uh, big fans of cliffhangers, huh? No. I can kind of tell. I understand. I get it. Hey, if we could do something real quick, and I don't know if your church, if you're part of a church back at home, um, if your church does this, and some churches do this on a regular basis, maybe some every once in a while, but um, some like to stand for the reading of God's word, and it's just a sign of respect. And I'm not, I'm not saying it's a legalistic thing that you always have to every time. But maybe after what it is that we just kind of watched um, in the presentation and then we think about what it is that we're going to look at tonight and what it is that Jesus did for us, it might be just a, a, a good thing for us to just kind of take a break from the norm and to do something that's a little bit different to get our mind focused on what it is we're going to be looking at. So would you all mind, would you all mind standing if you're in the room, standing as we uh, stand in respect and honor of the word of God as it's read? I'm reading out of Isaiah 53, starting in verse 2 down through verse 6. I like that Isaiah was brought up before, about six or 700 years before Jesus actually showed up, he was prophesied about. And he was prophesied that he would be born of a virgin. It was prophesied that in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, of what his names would be. But here you get to Isaiah 53, and it talks about what he would endure. If you were to ask... If, if we could summarize what Jesus would go through in the Old Testament, like we look at John 3.16, it's like that's the summary. Like that's a big summary verse for us. I would say Isaiah 53 is the Old Testament version of it for us. It says this, verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken by God, smitten and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, I pray that you would draw people to Jesus that don't know you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would convict of sin, that people would see their need for a Savior. That, Father, you would draw them to a place where they realize the value of the invitation because they realize the value of the one who's invited them to follow. That those who don't know you, they've never surrendered to you. That tonight would be the night where salvation becomes their reality. And walking with you as a follower of Christ, forgiven, made right with you, would become something that they experience. And Holy Spirit, as you would come into them and change them, Begin the process. God, we pray, make much of Jesus. Keep my opinion and my agenda to myself. God, may you only be heard. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone who agrees says, amen. And so we look at Jesus as he's in the upper room with his disciples. And he's having the Last Supper. And the Last Supper, he's talking, I mean, just picture Jesus and his 12 disciples and and he says, hey, I've longed to have this, this meal with you. And then he kind of at some point says, you know, all of you are going to desert me tonight. You're all going to take off. 
And Peter steps up. He's like, no, 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 I won't. Even if all these slackers do, I won't do it. And he looks at Peter and he says, Peter, you're going to be the worst one of all of them. See, they're just going to take off running, but you're actually going to verbally say out loud three different times that you don't even know who I am before morning. He's like, no, 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 I would, I would go to prison for you. I would die for you. All the other disciples, they say the same thing. They back what it is that Peter says, and they say, this is what we agree with. Guys, when you fast forward out of that, and they go into the Garden of Gethsemane, and guys, when you look, oh, no, I'm sorry, in the Mount of Olives, when you look when he goes and prays, Jesus takes the three, Peter, James, and John, all the disciples are there, but the three go with him, he brings them, he says, guys, would you pray with me? And his countenance is different, his appearance looks different, He's, he seems overwhelmed by what's coming. And so they stay put where they're told to stay put, and he goes, the Bible says about a stone's throw away, and he collapses to the ground, and he begins to pray. And part of his prayer, he says, Father, and the word Father there in the Aramaic is the word Abba, the word Abba means papa or dada. It's very personal. And so for those of us who are followers of Jesus, let me remind you that we have the Holy Spirit in us who gives us the ability that when we speak to this God of the universe who measures the universe with the span of his hand, this perfect holy being, the Holy Spirit is the one who gives us the ability to cry out, Abba, Papa, Dada. We get to have that type of relationship with him. And so his father, take this cup from me, but not my will, your will be done. So what's he talking about there? So he says, take this cup from me. In the Old Testament, the cup was a representation of the, of the wrath of God. And so what Jesus is saying while he's praying is, Father, take your wrath from me, but not my will, your will be done. The Bible says he goes back and he finds the disciples. And you know what they're doing? Anybody remember? They're sleeping. They're conked out. And so he wakes them up and he goes, guys, I get that the flesh is weak, but the spirit is willing, but you got to stay awake and pray. Isn't it amazing that the same people who said, hey, we would go to prison for you, we would die for you, could even stay awake for him. And the thing is, guys, I used to judge them. It's like, how could you, how could you not? But has anyone ever tried to pray once you get into bed and once you get under the covers and it's cold and then you realize this was a mistake? You know, you pull up the covers and you start to do the wiggle. You know the wiggle, you're just trying to find that spot. You're like, where is that? Where is it? Boop, there it is. And you're ready to go. And then you're ready to pray. Just, God, I just want, and you're gone. <laughs> Guys, I, I think God gets it. But Jesus specifically told them, stay awake and pray. Friends, there are times where God is going to ask us to do things that are uncomfortable. And we may sit there and go, but I could explain why I don't have to and why I can be more comfortable. And the whole time Jesus is going to say, you could justify your disobedience, but what I called you to do, I expect. I think a lot of times, as followers, even as followers of Jesus, we actually think that God prefers our opinions when I can tell you that God always prefers our obedience. So he goes away and he begins to pray again and he comes back and they're what? Sleeping. And he goes away again and he prays and we think that that's all he prayed. Father, take, uh, take this cup from me, but not my will, your will be done. But when you read John chapter 17, the whole chapter, that's what Jesus prayed in the garden. So in the garden of Gethsemane, he's sitting there, he's praying all of John 17, but there's this part in John 17, it's around verse 23, 24, 25, somewhere around there where he says something like this, Father, I want those that you have given to me to be with me where I am to see me in my glory. 
Because it's the only time when I see Jesus pray to the Father, he actually says, this is what I want. Every other time I see in the gospel accounts when Jesus prays, he says something like, okay, I only do the things I see the Father doing. I only say the things I hear him saying. But here he says, this is what I want. I want those you have given to me to be with me where I am to see me in my glory. Guys, do you realize that in the garden, before he's taking a cross, you know what he's praying for? Us. He wants us. Guys, the writer of Hebrews says it this way, that we're supposed to look to Jesus, the author and perfect of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, is now seated at the right hand of, at the right hand of God. But it's the joy set before Jesus. What is the joy that was set before Jesus? Is it not us? So after he finished praying, he comes back and they're sleeping. And he wakes him up and he says, guys, get up. My betrayer's at hand. And he can see from a distance as they get up and they're wiping their eyes and they see this lanterns coming toward them. And this little mob of people and leading the way. Can you remember who's leading the way? Anybody remember? Yep. Judas Iscariot's leading the way. You ever wonder why he actually was in the mob with them? Like, why lead the way? Why not just point, there's Jesus, and walk away? It never says. The Bible doesn't say it, right? So it's like this guess. I mean, was he just ticked off with Jesus? I know that he had to show which one was Jesus when he got there. They couldn't arrest Jesus in the crowd because the crowd loved him. So you got to find a place where Jesus is by himself. And Judas Iscariot knew he would be there to pray by himself, speaking to the Father. So as they get closer, here's the thing. When you look at the Bible and, and the mob is coming toward Jesus and Judas Iscariot is leading the way, he looks at his disciples and says, come on, get up. My betrayer's at hand. And then the Bible says that he walked straight toward him. Guys, they didn't, they didn't find Jesus hiding behind a rock or taken off and bolting when they had to chase him and tackle him to the ground. He walked straight toward them. Guys, there's no one who's ever been tougher than Jesus. He walked straight toward those who were going to arrest him and lead him to his death. He didn't try to hide. And Judas had made this plan. Hey, the one that I kiss on the cheek, that's the one. Isn't it amazing that Judas Iscariot picked, picked this thing that we would connect to friendship as the sign of betrayal? And so as they get closer, Judas leads the way and Jesus meets him and and you know what Jesus calls him? After Judas uh, kisses him on the cheek, he calls him friend. I'm not sure I would have said that. Would you have? Knowing what was going to happen, knowing what he just agreed to, to hand over Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, to hand him over to his death, would you then look at him and say, hey, friend, you actually betray me with a kiss? You betray me with a sign of friendship? And then all of a sudden the mob gets closer and, and they grab hold of him and they begin to tie him and all of a sudden the disciples jump in and one especially pulls out a sword and hacks off a dude's ear. I know. I mean, think about it. He hacks off the dude's ear. Have you ever wondered what, what, like, what was he going for? Well, like, and maybe he's just an incredible swordsman. He's just like, shabam. Or maybe he's like, ah, and it just gets his ear and Jesus like, oh, put it away. Peter. Put it away, that's embarrassing. And then what Jesus, he's not bound yet, he goes and he picks up the ear. And he walks over to Malchus, that's the guy's name, and he puts it back on his head and heals him right then. 
Don't you think that somebody in that crowd would have said, never mind. I mean, look at it. He just did it again. Nope. They bind him. And what did all the disciples do? They bolted. Every single one of them. Just like Jesus said, even Peter. So they lead Jesus away. They take him to the high priest's house into his courtyard. Not to the temple. This isn't even a, listen, this, this is not a, a legal trial. It cannot happen in the middle of the night, but they're making it happen. Why? Because they want to get rid of God. I mean, ultimately, isn't that who they're getting rid of? They're getting rid of God. Because they preferred a God that they can control rather than a God that they couldn't. So they, as they're in there, they would blindfold him and smack him upside the head and punch him in the face. And as he speaks to the chief priest and says something, one of the guards comes up and smacks him in the head. And, and John was able to get Peter into the courtyard and they're warming themselves by the fire. And a little servant girl looks at Peter and says, hey, you were with them. No, no, I don't know the man. No, 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 you were, I saw you. No, I don't know him. Another, point, another guy comes walking up and says, no, you were with him. I can tell by your accent. Gives you away every time. But Peter says, I don't know the man. In fact, may God bring down curses upon me. I don't know the man. And right after that, the Bible says that the rooster crowed. And Jesus, who's sitting and can see where Peter is, and looks straight into the eyes of Peter. And the Bible says that Peter then ran away and wept bitterly. And you never see him again until the resurrection. After all these accusations and false witnesses who could not corroborate their stories... The high priest then finally says, hey, just tell us, are you the Messiah? Are you the one? And Jesus says, it's as you say, and from this moment on, you're going to see the Son of Man, which is a, it's a title for, of divinity. It's a title talking about God. You're going to see the Son of Man riding on the clouds. And it's a, it's a reference back to Daniel. It's a messianic prophecy. The high priest hears him, tears his clothes. We don't need anything else. Let's vote. What do we need to do? And now all of a sudden, the chant starts, just crucify him. Boom. Let's get rid of him. They make the vote. They take him to Pilate. We're going to fast forward so we don't have that because we don't have a ton of time. Pilate says, hey, this isn't my thing. Send him to Herod. Herod's kind of like this fake king. Herod's like, do some tricks. Tell me a story. Do something. And Jesus isn't hardly doing anything. I'm not saying anything. He's like, just get him out of here. Send him back to Pilate. I don't want to deal with it. Goes back to Pilate. And Pilate brings him to the side. Because all these accusations are being made by the religious leaders of what it is that he's done. And Pilate knows, the Bible says it, Pilate knows that this is happening because they're jealous of him. And so he's asking them questions. Jesus doesn't respond but stays quiet. And Pilate says something like this. Do you not understand that I have the authority to release you? And this is my paraphrase of what Jesus said. It's like Jesus looked at Pilate and said, oh, Pilate, you're JV. Welcome to varsity. Like, you got no play here, dude. This has been put in play before time began. How do I know? For those of you who are followers of Jesus, do you realize that you were chosen by God to know him before the foundation of the world? Ephesians chapter 1 is pretty clear. Before the foundation of the world, you were chosen in Jesus so before God said, let there be light, he said, let them be mine. He picked you. So this whole plan of salvation was not a reaction to the fall, but it was always plan A. The fall was going to happen no matter what. God's plan of salvation was going to come about no matter what. This was plan A. From that moment on, the Bible says that he tried to get him released. But it couldn't happen, and so he thought, okay, so what could I do? 
You know what? I haven't found anything where he's worthy of death, so I'll have him flogged. And so they would take Jesus. This is what flogging was. They would take Jesus, and there's a vertical post. They would strip Jesus of his clothing, and then they would take his arms, and they would attach his wrist by a leather strap to the beam. So then his back is completely exposed. And from that point, two Roman guards, one on each side, hold what's called a cat of nine tails. A cat of nine tails, picture a stick about 18 inches in length. And then at one end, you're seeing, you'll see leather strips tied at the end of that. And at the end of those leather strips are pieces of razor, of glass, of bone, of sharp rock. They become a claw. And 39 times, bless you, 39 times from his upper back to his calves. They would take that cat of nine tails across his back, but not just hit him with it, but as it dug into his flesh, they would then pull in such a way to rip open his body. 39 times. The reason they didn't go to even 40 is because too many people died at 40. So they brought it back one. Can you imagine that when he's done and they released his wrists from that post and he collapses to the ground and the blood that's pouring out. And then they take the, they would grab him and they would hoist him up and have him stand there and then they'd take this purple robe to mock him and they put it on him like a king. And they found these thorns and they made, they made this crown of these thorns and then they put it on his head and the Bible says that they would take a rod and they would smack it across his head to make sure that it stayed. And then they would blindfold him and hit him with a rod and punch him in the face. They prophesy who hit you. You realize in the book of Isaiah, I think it's in 52, chapter 52, where it says he was so badly marred he did not resemble a human. And then they take him before 600 Roman soldiers. And all of them mock him. All hail king of the Jews. All hail king of the Jews. And then he comes back to Pilate. See, back in the garden when Jesus was praying, there's one gospel writer who wrote this part that he began to sweat drops of blood. Anybody know which one that was? Luke. Anybody know why Luke might have written that? What was, what was Luke's job? He was, a, yeah, I'm sorry. he was a doctor. So don't you think the doctor would be interested in that? You sit there and go, well, that's just poetic license. He's just being creative that he's just saying he's really scared. Guys, do you realize that there's a physical condition? There's a medical condition that if you're under enough stress and you're terrified of something, the capillaries in your forehead will burst and you will sweat drops of blood. Jesus was terrified of the cross and now we're standing here and Jesus is in a purple robe, crown of thorns, face all mauled, eyes swollen, and he's just looking at a crowd of people who are just mocking him. And Pilate's like, okay, I'm going to try to get rid of him. I'm going to try to get you released. So Barabbas, come here. Barabbas is a murderer. He's a terrorist. And he says, which one do you want me to release? Can you imagine the shock? This is, a, this, is, this is a church softball pitch. I mean, this is easy to hit. I mean, I, th I think he picked Barabbas because he thought it would be obvious. All of a sudden, he's like, he starts hearing people say, Barabbas, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas. And then what do you want me to do with him? Crucify him. Crucify him. That chant just starts, crucify him, crucify him. Can you imagine Barabbas' face? I don't know if, Bar I don't even think Barabbas was sitting there with this, I'm so grateful to Jesus. I think he's just sitting there going, I don't have to die today. So, Bar so Barabbas is released. 
Pilate signs the edict and then he hands it off and then he washes his hands in front of everyone and he says, his blood is now on you. And what do the religious leaders say? They say, not, on, not just on us, but on our children as well. Speaking prophetically and they had no clue what they were saying. They took Jesus and they took the purple robe off of him and they put his clothes back on. And then they take the cross beam of the cross, which weighs anywhere between 70 to 120 pounds, and they lay it across his back, where Jesus would then have to embrace it. And then Jesus began to walk the 600 yards or so. The thing is that nobody had to push him. No one had to pull him. He walked. Why? Because in the garden, he prayed something like this. Father, I want those that you have given to me to to be with me where I am to see me in all of my glory. And I think with each step that he took, He said, I want them to be with me. Even the one who broke through the Roman guards who were surrounding Jesus to protect him as he walked, the one, the next that would come through, pull chunks of his beard out, spit on him, slap him, and as Jesus, he just kept walking. He didn't stop. Man, I don't get it. He must have really meant it when he prayed, I want those that you have given to me to be with me where I am to see me in all of my glory because he just kept walking until at some point he's so exhausted because of everything that he's gone through and the loss of blood that he's experienced that he collapses to the ground and about 120 pounds lands straight on his back. And he can't get up, he can't push up. Can you imagine 120 pounds laid across your back? Don't you think it'd begin to, you'd you'd have a hard time breathing at some point? And so the Roman guard sees he can't get get up and they're not going to carry this. And so they find a guy named Simon. Come here, Simon, pick this up. No, I can't do that. Pick it up. So can you imagine as he, as he hoisted up 120 pounds, give or take, and, he get, and Jesus might crawl out from underneath it, or maybe he's climbing up on Simon as Simon's trying to help him. And what if they get eye contact? And what if Jesus just whispers, I want him to be with me, to see me in my glory. And Jesus stands straight up and begins to walk. No one pushing, no one pulling. He walks. They get to the place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. They would take Jesus, they would take the cross beam that Simon is carrying, and they would place it across the vertical beam of the cross. Then they would take Jesus, completely strip him naked of his clothing, and lay him across the cross. They would take one arm and stretch it out as far as they could and take a railroad spike and drive it between the two bones that are in his wrist. They would take his other arm, stretch it out as far as they could, and drive a railroad spike through those, between those two bones in his wrist. Then they would take one foot, place it over the other, push up, his, push up his feet so his knees were bent, and drive a spike through both. And the Bible says that when that was happening, do you understand what Jesus was saying? We think that he only says it once because it's only written down once, but actually the way that it's worded in the original language is that Jesus kept saying this over and over. While they're putting a mallet to a spike through his wrist, he's saying what? Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. They don't know. They don't know what they're doing. As the left wrist, they don't know. Father, forgive them. As the feet, they don't know. Father, forgive them. And still, I don't think that's why he sweat drops of blood in the garden. And then they would take the cross, now that Jesus is attached to it, and they would hoist it up so that it goes vertical. And then all of a sudden they would place it into place and, and gravity would pull down on the creator of it. Guys, do you realize that because his arms are stretched out like they are, 
the weight of his body would be pulled down by gravity that would cause his shoulders and his elbows to dislocate. And the way that Jesus, I mean, think about it. He just, he's hanging there in order for him to breathe. He can inhale as he comes down, but in order to exhale, he has to pull up on the spikes in his wrist or push up on the one in his feet. And it's not these long, drawn-out breaths where you're, he's saying, <sighs> it'd be more like, <sighs> I mean, for, for six hours, he's enduring this. And still, I don't think that's why he sweat drops of blood. And about noon, the sky went dark like midnight. High noon. It's dark like midnight. See, at some point while Jesus was there, he only said a few things from the cross because in order to speak, he had to pull up on the, on the spikes or push up on the one in his feet. A few times he speaks, but here's one thing he said. He said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Guys, don't you think it's interesting that every time you see Jesus talk to the Father, he always calls him Father, except here. This is the only time when he calls out to God where he calls him God and not Father. And why do I believe that this is? This is my conviction about it. The Bible claims that, the Bible, not claims, the Bible teaches that Jesus became what's called the propitiation. It's a big old word, but this is what it means. It means that Jesus became the new target of. Propitiation means he became the new target. He became the new target of God's wrath, that instead of God pouring out his wrath on humanity for the sin of our, because of our sin, he actually poured it out on his son. Every sin of the past, every sin in that moment, all sins that were going to happen after that moment, including ours, were placed on Jesus, and the wrath of God was poured out on him. And there was this break in intimacy between the Father and the Son, it's my conviction that at that moment, Jesus experienced what hell is, for hell is the absence, a removal of God. Getting God out is like, I'm separated from God. See, Jesus was forsaken so that we could be forgiven. Jesus was forsaken so that we would never have to experience what that feels like. Father, I want those that you've given to me to be with me where I am, to see me in all of my glory. Guys, I wonder how often he said that from the cross. Jesus knows that he's about ready to die. He knows his heart's just pumping like crazy trying to find any blood left in it because it's all been poured out. And then from the cross, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Isn't it amazing that the same God, he just said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right after that says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit because the son knew, Jesus knew that he could trust the father. And then with his final breath, it's like he pulls up on the spikes in his wrist and push ups on the, push up, pushes up on the one in his feet and he just screams out, it is finished. And he dies. Guys, those three words, it is finished, it's actually, literally, it's a banker's term. And what Jesus literally said from the cross was this, paid in full. It's paid in full. How could that be? Guys, when you read, when you read the Old Testament, especially when you get to Leviticus, and you have all these, all these different types of sacrifices, and you have to take the perfect lamb, no blemishes. You have to take that perfect animal, no blemishes, 
so he could be presented as a sacrifice before God that there could be the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sin. But then the writer of Hebrews comes out and says, hey, it's impossible for the blood of bulls or goats to bring about forgiveness of sin. All those sacrifices in the Old Testament were seriously a picture of Jesus coming and what it is that he would do for us. The perfect king was the perfect sacrifice. For no one else could do it. Guys, you realize that when Jesus died, the earth shook. A centurion, I mean, this hardened warrior of the Roman empires looking at Jesus when he says, it is finished, the earth shakes. And this was his response. All he saw was Jesus die, the earth shakes, and he goes, surely this was the son of God. Then the scene shifts from the cross to the temple. So the writers, they take us to the temple, and in the temple there's called the most holy place. The most holy place, inside the most holy place is the Ark of the Covenant. The high priest would only go into the most holy place one time a year, and then on the Day of Atonement. Every other time, stay out. Why? That's the very presence of God. We're not going in there. Everyone was terrified. In fact, when the high priest had to go in, they would put a bell or some kind of noisemaker on his clothing because if he went in in a manner that was unworthy of God, they thought that he would die. And if he died, they'd have to pull him out because nobody's going in after him. And that most holy place was separated from everyone else by a, by a curtain that most scholars say was about 18 inches thick. And right when Jesus died, the earth shook, and then all of a sudden the scene changes to the temple, and that curtain was torn from top to bottom, and boom, now you have access to the most holy place. Because Jesus said, this has been paid in full. Guys, when you start looking at what it is that Jesus did for us, and what he did because of us, it's so easy to sit there and go, he died for us. And it's a good gesture, right? It's a savior gesture. When we have to pull back and go, he didn't just die for us, he died because of us. Guys, we broke it. We broke it. Remember Genesis chapter 3, we broke the whole thing. And Jesus fixed it. God fixed it. He dies. Guys, I've preached this message for, I don't know, a couple decades. Every time I go to a camp and they say, hey, can you present like, what Jesus went through and present like, an opportunity for kids to respond to the gospel. And I believe the gospel message is not just the cross, but I believe the gospel message is Genesis to Revelation. It's the whole book. It's the whole story found in this Bible. I remember early on, I remember I preached, that, I preached this message, but I stopped at the cross. I just left Jesus dead. And in the early, earlier in the week, there's this high school kid, and he's just, man, he just on my heart. And I just, I was like, God, would you get him? Would you get him? Get him. The whole week, and I was, I'm not going to lie, I was kind of an arrogant jerk when I started preaching, and God's ripped me apart, and I know that I suck. So I'm really thankful for that. But back then, it was kind of like, look at how good I am. Look at what I'm doing. And now I can sit and go, I don't have a clue what I'm doing. It's always God. Like, God gets all the credit. And so I remember I, when I'd call kids to commit to Christ, it wasn't even commit to Christ. I would say something like, if you want to accept Jesus into your heart. I'm not sure we got, came up with that concept, but we actually think that that fits. 
But I said, if you want to, or if you want to accept Jesus as your Savior, then just come forward. You, and I wouldn't say you don't have to because I wanted to see them do it. Because if they walked forward and I was standing on the stage, it was kind of like, look what I did. And man, a bunch of kids came forward. And I'm looking at this kid in the back. And he's sitting all still. And all of a sudden he goes, oh. And he comes back down. And I'm like, get him. Get him. Get him, Holy Spirit. Get him. And all of a sudden he stood up and he walked forward. And I'm like, yeah, but you got to be cool because you're the pastor. So I was like, mm, yeah. So the next day he comes walking up. He goes, Brian, did you see me? I was like, I did. Dude, I was so stoked for you, man. That's awesome. And he says, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. And he goes, what happened next? And I'm like, in my head, I thought, you know, Brett, how could you miss it? And I went, oh. I never told him the best part. I left Jesus on the cross. Why? Can I be honest? It's easier to leave Jesus on the cross when you're a pastor so that you can guilt people into making a fake decision so your ego's stroked. Guys, I've regretted that part of my life for a long time. Because I don't know how many kids I led into a false understanding of what they did. Here's the best part. I've never forgotten since that day. Guys, on that Friday, Jesus died for the sin of the world and because of us. But on that Sunday, the earth shook, the stone was rolled away, and Jesus walked out from the dead. He resurrected from the dead, just like he said that he would do. Some people might ask you, or they might ask me, hey, why would you give your life up for Jesus? And I just, I just this is usually my response. A guy who predicted what he predicted. If a guy pulls off Easter after saying that he would do it, I'm going to go with him. Like, that's the guy for me. Guys, he dies, he comes back from the dead, just like he said that he would. Here's the truth, God. Or here's the truth, guys. For God so loved the world. There it is. Guys, when we start getting that concept for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, when we say that we love people, but we're not being generous to people, we're not loving like Jesus loved. But God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have what? Eternal life. And eternal life is not just length of time, but eternal life is defined by Jesus in John chapter 17, verse 3. This is eternal life that they might know God. That they might know his son. It's a quality of life. But Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 6, when he's looking at his disciples and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Because you ever notice that in that verse, he doesn't say, I am a way, I am a truth. And I can be some part of life. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then makes that bold statement, no one comes to the Father except through me. Guys, when I surrendered my life to Christ, I became what's called in Christ. That means as the Father loves the Son, and as the Father sees Jesus, is how, now Jesus, how the Father now loves me and sees Jesus me because I'm in Christ 
It's like this. Remember, remember last night we looked at Genesis 3.21 when Jesus makes garments, of, or God makes garments of skins and clothes Adam and Eve, remember? He clothes them. It's called imputed righteousness. So it's kind of like this. Picture I have this coat of sin and Jesus is standing there with a coat of righteousness and we switch coats. He takes my sin and I take on his coat, which is righteousness. So now I'm seen as righteous as Jesus is because he gave me righteousness. Does that make sense? It's not my own thing. He did it. He gave it. And just like in Genesis 3 where God is the one who initiated, hey, I'm going to fix this. He went after them. He's like, hey, Adam, where'd you go? Where are you guys? He calls them. And then he, by his grace, makes the garments of skins to clothe them. It wasn't because they deserved it. It's because he's gracious. Guys, that's why it's such a beautiful thing to go from, gosh, I know I'm a sinner and I can't save myself, but... God, by his grace, his mercy. And so friends, I just want to ask, those of you who have a relationship with Jesus, this isn't your time right here. What you should do is pray for those that don't know him. You may sit there and go, well, Brian, we're, we come from a Christian school. Okay, so what's that mean? It's like, well, everyone who goes to a Christian school is a Christian. That's like saying when I walk into a McDonald's, I turn into a Big Mac. Like, it doesn't work like that. Well, I go to church. That doesn't mean that you actually know Christ. Brian, you know, I've been brought up in a Christian home, but I'm asking, have you brought, come to a place where you've surrendered your life to Jesus? It is, guys, everyone has to make the decision about Jesus. Like, I'm not going to stand before God one day holding my parents' hand. I'm with them. It's me and him. What did I do with the son? What did I do with Jesus? And I think the same question is for you. What will you do with him? Somebody say, I don't, I don't want anything to do with this. That's your decision. I can't change it. But oh, how I beg and plead that you would be reconciled to Jesus. That you reconciled to God through Jesus. So here's how we're going to do it. In a moment, I'm going to ask Hey, do you want to surrender your life to Jesus? And what I'm not asking is, do you want to accept him as your Savior? Because that's not what it is. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. To confess, that word confess in the original language means to say something in such a way that people will be able to see what you meant by how you live. And the word Lord means master. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. When I confess that he's Lord, it means I'm turning away. I'm repenting. Remember that word, repent? I'm repenting from sin and running to Christ. And in that moment, I'm saying, I want to follow you. You're my master. And the first thing that Jesus gives to me is what? Salvation. Because it's the gift that's been paid for by him. And I say, I'll follow you with everything that I've got because you're worth it. Friends, you do not have to stand up to surrender to Jesus. I want to make that perfectly clear. I would never say that in the past. Why? Because I wanted the ego stroked. But today, absolutely. You do not have to. You could right there just go, Jesus, I confess you are Lord. I didn't know you went through all that. I'm starting to get this understanding of what it means to follow you. And I've never surrendered my life to you. And you want to confess him as master of your life. And you know that he died on the cross, came back from the dead. And you want to receive the gift that he gives when you become a follower of Jesus. Boom. This is for you. You could just do it right there. But if you want to remember that on, what's the date? 13th? 12th? October 12th. 
that on October 12, 2022, I was up at Hume, and that's when I stood to tell everybody that I had surrendered to Jesus. Guys, why do I give that as an option? Because I remember when I was 17, in that building over there called Ponderosa, third row back where the, pew, where the pews get to an angle is when I stood up and said, Jesus, I'm yours. You're my master. I give you my life. I don't think the standing up saved me. In fact, I know it didn't save me. But I'll never forget that day. It was in August. I remember it was in August. I don't remember the date, but I remember it was in August. So this is how we're going to do it. In a moment, I'm going to say, if you want to surrender to Jesus and make it known so we all can celebrate with you, I'm going to have you stand up with every head up and every eye open. Everybody gets to watch. You're like, oh, wait a minute. Brian, we're used to heads bowed, eyes shut. Nobody, nobody knows. I know, but do you ever wonder why we do that? I think the angels in heaven, I think once they watch that, it's like, why do they do that? And God's like, I don't know. I never told her to do that. Why, do they, why are they so embarrassed by this? I don't know. At no point did I say, hey, I want to make this as, quote, unquote, easy as possible. What I actually see Jesus say is, anyone who wants to be my follower must deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. If you're going to follow me, realize you don't get everything you've ever wanted. You've got to renounce everything that you have and own if you want to follow Jesus. Guys, this isn't an embarrassing thing. This is amazing. The Bible says all of heaven celebrates when one who has lost comes home. So one who comes, someone who's lost comes to Jesus, heaven has a flipping party. It's like they're, they're having like guacamole and a chips and salsa bar, and, and we're down like, this is what we look like. <laughs> Guys, I don't think it's supposed to be like that. Because the most incredible miracle you could ever watch is a person who says, I want to pass from death to life. I want to follow Jesus and give him my life. Guys, that's more impressive than God splitting a Red Sea. So here's the thing. If you're already a follower of Jesus, you already made that decision. This isn't your time. It's like, well, I want to do it again. Guys, you only do it one time. You surrender to Jesus one time, and then you get him forever. You don't get saved for the first time again. Do you see the problem with that statement? One time. Now, in just a second, for those that say, I've made that decision but kind of wandered off, we'll get to you in just a second. But this is for those of you who are not followers of Jesus. But if tonight you want to say, whether it's tonight you made the decision or sometime throughout this week when you're talking to a teacher, you're talking to a parent, or talking to one of the leaders, you're talking to someone from Hume, it's like, hey, I, this is really when I made my decision for Jesus. Guys, it's not about me. It's about you and Jesus. It's about Jesus doing this incredible work. So it doesn't just have to be right now. But if you want to remember that on October 12th, I stood up and I told everyone that I'm in school with, at least this class, I want to follow Jesus and I'm re I want to receive his gift of salvation. If that's you and you want to let us know that that's what you're doing, you've never done it before, but tonight is the first night. You've passed from death to life. You're receiving his gift. If that's you, like I said, and you want to let us know, would you do me a favor and would you stand up? Look around. Don't look at me. I'm saved. There's a, awesome, awesome, awesome. <laughs> Stay standing when you get up. If you mean it, like if you mean it, Good deal. Anybody else? Just stay standing up. Don't, don't sit down just yet. If you're standing, stay standing. You got to make the decision. Okay. So here's the thing. For those of you who are standing up, I got to ask you a couple questions.
You got to respond out, out loud for me, okay? By standing up, are you saying that you, that you are confessing that Jesus is master of your life? And by standing, are you declaring to everyone here that you believe that he died on a cross and came back from the dead? Yes. Then welcome to the family. That's it. And for those of you who surrendered to Jesus, and maybe for someone here, he's sitting there going, Brian, I did it. I just don't want to stand. I couldn't. I'm so sorry. You have nothing to apologize about. Nothing. Jesus knows you did it. But I didn't stand. So what? It doesn't matter. Maybe for some of you, though, you made that decision for Jesus a while back. But you haven't really been living like a follower of Jesus. Like you might say, well, Brian, I'm a Christian. I'm just not practicing. That's like me saying that I'm married. I'm just not practicing. Like it doesn't make any sense. Guys, we've lessened what it, is, what it means to actually be a Christ follower just so that we're a little bit more comfortable. We can actually do what we want rather than to follow Jesus. So maybe for some of you, you kind of wandered off from following Jesus and you got to come back. Or maybe for some of you, you're just in a place of brokenness. Like something is just weighing on you. And you're a follower of Jesus or... It's like, but this, this I'm terrified of, or this situation's going on with my family or my friend. This is, this is so overwhelming to me. Maybe you just need to stand. And so if you need to come back to Jesus, because you've at some point made a decision, but you haven't, been, you haven't been walking with him, or you're just broken, say, like, God, would you please step in? I don't know how much longer I can deal with this. With everyone watching, would you stand up? I know it's kind of humbling, but I think it's so necessary. Would you stand up? It's like, I got to come back to Jesus. Awesome, awesome, good deal. Or you're broken, whatever one. You don't need to tell me, like I'm not a priest. You talk to Jesus. Anybody else? Remember, this isn't salvation. This is just, I gotta come home or I'm just broken. Awesome. Friends, for those of you that are standing, at some point tonight before you go to bed, I want you to read Luke 15 with, their, with your leader. The part where it starts with the prodigal son story. And what I want you to do is I want you to notice the reaction, the response of the father when the son comes back. And realize that that's the same response that God has for you when you turn away from where you've been wandering and you come back to Jesus. Just read it. Will you do that for me? And then tell me what you saw. I usually give away the answer, but I'm not going to do that tonight. You come up to me tomorrow. I'll find you at breakfast. I'll be at breakfast tomorrow. You come and tell me. And if, it, and if it's all you find, just come and do like a song. It'd be fantastic. <laughs> Friends, this is what it's about. Hume staff, this is what it's about, right? It never gets old. It never gets old. Can I pray for us? Let me pray. We're going to close it down. Father, for those who stood saying that they want to surrender their lives to you and to follow you, God, I pray that you would solidify that decision, that they would understand the weight of saying they want to commit their lives to you. They've confessed you as Lord. They know you died on a cross and came back from the dead. Holy Spirit, for those who made that decision, you've come into them to lead, to guide, to counsel, to convict, to encourage, to play with. They're yours. 
And I pray that they would learn that their identity is son or daughter of the king, and that would change everything. And God, for those who stood because they're going to come back to you or they're just broken, God, I thank you that you meet them right where they are. And oh, Holy Spirit, do a great work so that the decision that those who are coming back would be solidified never to wander off, but to desire to be close to you no matter what it takes. And that those who are broken and feel hopeless, Father, I pray that you would give them hope and remind them, as you reminded us earlier this week, that you have lived out all of our tomorrows. You know exactly what you're doing, even when it seems like you don't. God, in all that you've done tonight, all that you will continue to do while we're here and for the rest of our lives, to you be all the praise, all the glory, and all the honor for you alone are worthy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone who agrees says, amen. Love you all more than you know.